suffering the least, it would be our wonderful politicians, right? And so the story is told of a politician who visited a remote village, and he asked them what their needs were. And one villager replied and said, Sir, we have two basic needs. Firstly, we have a hospital, but there's no doctor. There's no staff there. And so on hearing this, the politician whipped out his cell phone. And after speaking for a while, he reassured the village leader that the doctor and nurses would be there the very next day. And then he asked about the second problem, what that was. And the villager said, Secondly, sir, there is absolutely no cell phone coverage anywhere in this village. I think that went over better in the first service. But anyway, it was an attempt at humor anyway. And I'm sure you'll appreciate it. So promises are oftentimes made, but broken. But our God is one who makes promises and who will most certainly fulfill them. Amen? He makes promises, he fulfills them, but frequently he doesn't fulfill them in our preferred timing. Our timelines usually don't overlap. But we must be reminded that we serve a God who fulfills his promises. Well, that brings us, of course, to the book of Micah. And we're about halfway through this book, and I invite you to turn your Bibles to Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 today. Micah, as we know, prophesied judgment on Israel. He announced that Judah would be next. He let the Israelites know that why they had suffered discipline from God or why they would suffer it from God. And it's because they oppressed the poor by stealing their land and their inheritances. And even when you steal the land from a man, you steal his identity, too. So they allowed oppression wide-scale oppression to take place in their nation, and they didn't do anything about it. There was nowhere for someone to appeal, some more powerful person stealing their land in those days. And so the prophets criticized the leadership of Israel because of this oppression that was part and parcel of the Israelite experience. Poor leadership contributed to this national sin, And the prophets did not warn, they did not warn the nation that they would be course corrected for their bad practices. They, the, the prophets, other than the biblical prophets and some who didn't write, who were also God fearing prophets, they, the false prophets only told Israel that God would bless them. You see, that he would only bless them. And so Micah provided balance as he excoriated the false prophets of his day. As, of course, they criticized him, but he criticized them right back and said, you guys are not telling the whole truth. You're only telling people what they want to hear. You're only scratching their ears. And so Micah provided that balance, that Israel would be judged because of the breaking of the Mosaic Covenant, this package of promises that God had made with Moses for the nation. And see, he closed out chapter 3, which we looked at last week, with the calamity that was brought on by Israel's consistent failure to fulfill their side of the bargain. They continued to allow oppression to take place. They continued to allow false worship to take place, and they didn't do anything about it. 
And the prophets were like, oh, guys, you know, Israel is never going to be disciplined by God. They're only going to be blessed. And that's exactly the message that people wanted to hear over and over again. They wanted to be encouraged. They wanted to be affirmed. They did not want to be confronted in their sin. And so he closed out chapter 3 with the calamity brought on by Israel's failure. Look at verse 12 with me, which is the last verse in chapter 3. It says, therefore, because of you, he's focusing on the leadership of Israel, Zion, Israel, will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The Temple Hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. It'll be obliterated. It'll be destroyed by the Babylonians. And then again, in 70 A.D. by the Romans, it'll be destroyed. And that's the result of your sin. That's the consequence of not being obedient to God. And so Micah, along with the other prophets, were faithful in delivering that message, that difficult message that people didn't want to hear, but yet they needed to hear, so that way they would be given an opportunity to repent, that they could experience national repentance and change their ways and worship the one true God. And so that's the bad news. And Micah was faithful in delivering that bad news. But now Micah looks into the future. He looks into the future in verses 1 through 8, 2,700 plus years from his perspective, about a time, a future time. And since the Hebrew mindset saw time as cyclical or circular, the prophets uh, were very comfortable in getting into their metaphorical time machines and taking the reader to different periods of time. And so the next couple of weeks, we're going to see the messages will break down according to a period of time, 2,700 and counting years into the future, um, verses 9 through 13, uh, the near future, and then into chapter 5, the medium-term future from Micah's perspective. And so look what he tells the nation in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. It says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So he's, he's, he's going 2,700 years and counting, because it hasn't happened to us yet either. So it's still counting, so it's at least this time period plus seven years, of course, because we have, of course, rapture, tribulation, second coming, millennial kingdom. So he's, that's roughly 2,700 years and counting into the future, so it might add on years, we don't know. But here he begins to talk about this period of time that we know as the millennium. And you're familiar with this chart. You've seen it a lot, especially as we went through the book of Revelation. Um, after the second coming, 
Christ returns to set up his physical earthly kingdom for a thousand years and then his leadership will continue into the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. So here he brings up this topic again. You and I, Revelation chapter 20, talked about the millennial kingdom. Joel chapter 3, just six weeks ago, we talked about the millennial kingdom. And here we are again, the prophets. I mean, there's big chunks of the major and minor prophets who talk about this future time. And they're not talking about it metaphorically or philosophically or in terms of a legend or myth. They are presenting it as a physical future experience for humanity. That Christ will return and he will establish this thousand-year reign. There's no hemming and hawing about it. It's just clear with the words on the paper that we see that this will be a future physical experience for humanity. And so just uh, Micah 4, I love it because it's like I've read it a hundred times, but I studied it this past week and it's like, wow, this approaches the millennial kingdom from a different mindset, a different perspective. It provides other data and information um, that you can't find anywhere else. It's so very valuable, very unique stuff. And so just a review of some of the characteristics of this period, and then we'll see what Micah adds on to his description of this future period of time. So the millennium begins the eternal reign of Christ as king, all right, and it's eternal but merged with the new heavens and the new earth. It is earthly and worldwide, and believers will rule and judge with Christ, so we will have a place at the table, we'll have responsibilities in the millennial kingdom. Um, it continues on that peace, joy, justice, prosperity, health, and knowledge will be part and parcel of this experience. Um, Israel will be the nucleus of the kingdom, won't be the only nation, but Jerusalem, Mount Zion, and the temple will be central. We'll see that. We'll see that expressed in Micah chapter 4 big time. Israel will receive the promised land that is, that, uh, is revealed in Genesis chapter 15, and it looks roughly like this piece of real estate with some major cities, of course, Jerusalem, and then you've got Beirut, you've got Cairo as well, contained within that land that Israel will be given um, because that was promised. The curse will be partially lifted, so it won't be heaven. So don't think of this as heaven, but think of it as our experience with many of the negative characteristics mitigated. Okay, So the curse will be partially lifted, and as a result, there will be physical and spiritual transformation. So it will, it, will, it will not be heaven on earth, but it will be better than this experience. And in fact, animal natures, climate, and there'll be some topographical changes. We talked about that in Joel chapter 3 a few weeks ago. There'll be resurrected believers, possible non-resurrected, believing tribulation survivors and angels will inhabit the kingdom at the start. So in the get-go, as soon as Christ returns, establishes his kingdom, 100% of the people there will be saved along with, of course, the angels, not the fallen angels, the unfallen angels. And so we'll have all believers at the beginning. Of course, there is a final rebellion, which we talked about when we went through Revelation. And so over time, believers will have children. Many of them, some of them will become believers, and they will contribute to this rebellion at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. And, of course, non-believers will be born from believers. But then... In this passage here, the, the, some of the new information that's revealed, and of course Ezekiel chimes in in seven chapters in his prophecy, 
about the temple. So what will the temple be like? We know just from this description in the first three verses that it will definitely be central. It will be huge. Ezekiel spends seven chapters giving lots of detail on the on the, the makeup and the dimensions of this massive temple complex that will take place. In fact, it's much larger than the previous temples. In the upper right, you see Herod's temple. In the middle there, kind of reddish, you see Solomon's temple, much smaller. And then, of course, before that, there was the court of the tabernacle, compared to, on the bottom right, the size of an American football field, but 300 feet, 100 yards. So you can see it's going to be massive, but that's okay because it'll be central in Jerusalem. In fact, it'll be the central governing point for the entire world. Christ will reign from the throne of David in this temple complex. So it will be central and the people will stream to it. So it won't just only be the central point in, on the earth, but it will also be attractive. So, of course, there are powerful places in the world today, but they're not so attractive. They can be kind of threatening, you know. Who wants to just waltz into the Pentagon? Who wants to go into the Kremlin? You know, you're not going to be really invited. But here, you will be invited, and good things will come from this governance because Christ will reign. So finally... Humanity will have a perfect government. Finally, after all of these years, we will experience perfect government because we'll have a perfect king. We will have a monarchy. You and I might be a member of a political party, and I am, but the political party that I'm really most impressed with and the one that I have eternal membership in is the party of the theocratic monarchists. So I am a monarchist, not a human monarchist, but a theocratic, the rule of God as king, the rule of Christ as king. That is our true eternal political perspective because that's exactly what we'll experience in the millennial kingdom and, of course, beyond that. And so it'll be central, it'll be attractive, And it'll be active because what will happen, what will emanate from this place is that there will be teaching, that there will be judgment, that there will be government. Christ will settle disputes among powerful nations. Israel, of course, at that time will be the only superpower, but apparently there will also be other nations and their leadership as well. But the neat thing is that Israel being the only superpower, but everybody will be fine with that. Everybody will have the same worldview, especially at the beginning. Of course, there will be those who divert from it toward the end of the thousand-year reign. But at least in the beginning period of the millennial reign, everybody will have the same worldview. To you and I, in this day and age, in America 2023, that's got to be really refreshing. Because if you experience... Some of my Thanksgiving dinners and Christmas dinners with my extended family and you start talking about anything other than the weather or sports, even sports will get you in trouble sometimes. But if you talk about any important topic and someone else at that dinner table has a different opposing worldview, they'll let you know about it, believe you me, right? 
I see some of you out there going, yeah, oh yeah, I had that last week, you know, with some of my family. And so, but here, everybody will have the same worldview. We'll all buy into the leadership and governing power and application of Jesus Christ. When we think about Jesus, we think about the one who came as a lamb to die for our sins, and he served us, and he was meek, but still strong and effective. (laughs) But he'll come back as a lion. We'll see a different aspect of Jesus that was always there, but he just didn't expose. So we won't see him so much as a lion, but we'll, I mean, we'll see him as a lamb, but we'll see him as a lion. He will be effective, but yet perfect balance of mercy and justice. And so this temple experience will be central. People will stream to it because of its attraction and it will also be a place of great activity. You see, this describes Christ's reign and the result in it, it will be uh, harmonious. There will be peace. Look what verse 3 says. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. All the defense budgets will drop to zero. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice to spend the money on something else? But you got to protect your nation. Ukraine and Israel know that. And so it will be perfect peace and harmony. It won't just be the absence of conflict. It will be the presence of harmony. It will have a peaceful effect. It's interesting, that statement, beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, that is on the edifice in New York City that we know as the United Nations Building. I don't know if it's still there. It wouldn't surprise me if they took it off. Because in almost 80 years, they haven't been really effective at maintaining world peace. Have you noticed? But I know someone who will be perfectly effective at bringing in and ushering in authentic peace and harmony amongst the nations. And his name is Jesus Christ. And so Christ's future reign will be physically central, attractive, and also an active place. Um, it'll be true and real. It's a, a time in place experience. It's not fantasy. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. Um, it won't be the new heavens and the new earth, but it is as God desired earth to be if Israel had been obedient and received her Messiah. This would have happened already if Israel had received Jesus Christ as the Messiah who would have ushered in the kingdom at that time. But we know that Israel didn't just ignore Jesus. They actively worked against him and desired him to be crucified to show everyone in a desperate attempt to show that he is cursed before God and ruin him once and for all and hell rejoice but only for three days, of course. Israel, even though you failed to do your part of the covenant, Yahweh could say, I will not fail. I will fulfill my promises that I made to you. 
Because my relationship with you is both unconditional as well as conditional. You will experience consequences for your bad choices, conditional, but it is unconditional because you will be my people. And that will never, ever change. And the promises that I make to you, they will most certainly be fulfilled. And I will have the prophets who continually would be opposed by their religious system and by the people who did not see them as popular sources of information, but yet they were authoritative because they were issuing forth the heart of God. Telling the nation that you need to repent, you need to change your ways, you need to change what you think and believe. But the nations ignored them, and so the kingdom did not come. For us, in this period of time, in this dispensation, God will fulfill His unfulfilled promises to us. We know that He uh, has given us His unconditional gifts already from the past and present. Those of us who've placed their faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sin have received those benefits already. You already have started eternal life if you placed your faith in Christ. So you're saved, you're redeemed, you're born again, you're justified. You have forgiveness, but you also have the righteousness of Christ imputed into your account. When God the Father sees you, He sees the righteousness and the holiness and the purity of Jesus. So we're given spiritual giftedness to edify and build up other people in the body of Christ, as well as reach out to those who haven't heard yet. And then there are conditional benefits, things that we have to do in order to, um, we, we have to like cooperate with God in order to fully realize these great blessings like peace, um, like unity. We have to maintain the unity of the church because we could mess it up really easily if we just gossiped and slandered. Um, we have to realize what our purpose is, understanding our spiritual giftedness gives us a shot at understanding what it is that we're supposed to do in the body of Christ. You guys do that really well by your high percentage of involvement here at Bear Creek Bible Church and into the community and even into all the world. You do that really well, by the way. Relationships to the point to where, like, you you guys are closer than to me than a large segment of my biological family. Like, you know, they're still my family. I'm not going to forsake them. But I have the same worldview as you and you, me, and we're together and we're redeemed. A lot of my family isn't. I still love them and care for them and wish the best for them. But, like, you're my brothers and sisters. You to me, but also amongst yourselves as well. So we have relationships. We have to really appreciate that and understand the great benefits of applying it as we serve one another. And then we also increasingly, too, have hopefully victory over sin. We have to understand that the grace of God doesn't call us to suppress sin. It calls us to replace it with God's graces. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, which we talked about two weeks ago. So we have already realized or are in the process of understanding and realizing and apprehending many of our blessings from God He promised us these things, and He has delivered on many of them. But then some of them are future tense. It's not quite time yet. And so I don't think anybody here, even though you guys are looking great today, I don't think anybody here has already gotten their resurrection body. I know I didn't. Yeah, 
I played tennis yesterday, and well, my arm, I woke up, man, I need to take some more turmeric, you know. And if that doesn't work, I'll take some Advil, you know. But I didn't get my resurrection body yet. That's future tense. That's future time. But yet God has promised it, and it will most certainly be fulfilled. Why? Well, because he's already allowed us to experience and gain so many other blessings. And so it would be unreasonable to say the best indicator of Future behavior is past behavior. So if he's fulfilled some of his promises, he will fulfill all of them one day. We're just not, we're just on a different timeline than him, right? So we have, um, future tense blessings, eternal contentment that begins probably in the millennial kingdom where we get kind of a taste of heaven or a taste of the new heavens and the new earth, I should say. And then there'll be also the rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, where hopefully every person in this room who's trusted in Christ as their Savior is going to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, will be given, will be given crowns, and then those we take in the ultimate act of worship, things that we have authentically worked for and earned, and we're going to turn them over to Jesus. Those are the only possessions that were never given to us as a gift. They, we earn them. And so, like, oh wow, the only thing in my experience, in my whole lifetime, that I've never, uh, that, that was just, that I actually earned, um, I'm gonna give it to Jesus. Oh, that's so cool. I can't wait for that. And so we'll also have a role in the millennial kingdom as well. And that's also a blessing in and of itself. You see, his blessings, past and future, have to be understood. And the ones that we have to cooperate with God to get in order to understand and apprehend them, those are the present tense blessings that we're beginning to understand and experience as we turn the pages of Scripture and we see his tremendous graces. But yet, this is oftentimes what we expect, the top view. We think things are going to be like always easy. Why? Well, because we were designed to live in a paradise. And newsflash, we're not in one. <laughs> So we expect it to be like that, but then what's our experience? The bottom one. And we haven't been told. There was no like orientation when we were first conceived or even when we first came out of our mothers. Like, this is the way life is going to be. No, we're just exposed to harsh light and extreme heat and extreme cold. And we're hungry. And then disappointment and hurt. They also, sickness and death, also join the fray of our experience. And so, this is what we expect, but it's also what we get, and also what we're quite unprepared for. So, how does God equip us to live in an experience like that? Well, He tells us the truth, that we have to recalibrate our expectations and our thinking, the false prophets of the world, they don't help with that, but the Bible sure does. And so in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul wrote this, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And if you understand that, and you accept it as truth, that helps a lot. It doesn't take away all the pain. It doesn't take away the disappointment. But rather, it adjusts our expectations in this life of what is normal. And I 
reinterpret the purpose of trials and disappointments, that they're there for a purpose, to wear off our rough edges. You see, Micah 4, I love it because it contributes a good description of the vibe and feel of this future kingdom. So many other passages tell us about the characteristics of it in terms of its appearance and its its logic and understanding and things like that. But Micah chapter 4, what it does, it tells us what it's kind of going to feel like in this future kingdom. Yahweh reveals his attitude in gathering his scattered and broken people. That's what he tells us next in verses 4 through 8. Look what he says. He says, every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. Ah, an absence of a negative emotion. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, and we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles, and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame a remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, O watchtower of the flock, O stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So there's a lack of negative emotions here. There will not be fear. There will be perfect harmony. The inhabitants of the kingdom will be united in their walking with Yahweh. Everybody will have the same worldview, at least in the beginning. Everybody will be on the same page. There's no need to be divided because we're all centered in the lordship and mastery and rule of Jesus Christ. So those who have been scattered all over the world, from the captivities, from the pogroms, from the genocides, all of them will be brought back. And what period of time exists right before the millennial kingdom? Well, the tribulation. What happened to Jews during the tribulation? Well, Pretty much the same thing that's happened to them since in the last 2,000, 3,000 years. They were persecuted, but really big time during the tribulation period. We covered that when we were in Revelation. Now there's 144,000 who will be faithful to God and they will bring many other Jews to salvation. And also, hopefully, I believe very strongly, many Gentiles as well will trust in Jesus as their Savior during the tribulation period, especially the last three and a half years known as the time of Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation. And so good things will happen even during that very dark period of time. But what is God's attitude toward the people who've been scattered? Right even today, there are about roughly 40 million Jews on the face of the planet. But a minority of them live in Israel. In fact, I believe there are more Jews that live in the United States than in the state of Israel at this time. And so... There will be many who are scattered. And so God's attitude is that he will be the ultimate shepherd. And he will gather them graciously and lovingly like a shepherd tends to his sheep who are scattered. This was Jesus' attitude. Even when Israel was in the process of rejecting him big time. This is what Jesus said. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? Oh, I wish I could have gathered you like little chicks who wandered away from the mother hen and those little chicks who would be picked off one by one by wolves or jackals or some other predatory creature. I just wish I could have gotten you all and brought you into safety to protect you and to provide for you. But you didn't want it. You wanted to go your own way. And you suffered as a result. But in stark contrast, in this period, this future period of time, you will be strong. Jerusalem's people, he calls them the watchtower or the ophel of the flock or the nation. And so in Jerusalem, there is this high point that is close to the Temple Mount. And the word awful means swell or rise and refers to a higher part of a landscape of a city. The Jebusites, the people group who inhabited Jerusalem or that area before the Jews came, they built their citadel there, there as did David, who also added a lot more fortification in this northern part of the city. So in the future period of time, that watchtower, that citadel, that high point where you could see all of the movement of the enemy who come to threaten your city, and you can also marshal and move around your defensive forces depending upon the direction of the attack by the enemy. Move more men to the south wall because we're being attacked there. You can see it all happening from the watchtower. And so you will have that restored and that will contribute to your strength. You'll be revitalized. You'll have power. You'll have authority. You'll have strength. And so God's people will be gathered to experience security, harmony, as well as strength. You won't be scattered. You won't be weak anymore. I will have pulled you all together. And this is the way that you will be in this future period of time known as the millennial kingdom. They will be reconciled to a physical, real place. But even more significant than the place that they will be restored to is the person that they will be restored to. And his name is Jesus Christ. You and I can be reconnected to that person too. If we've never placed our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, well, then what in the world is your plan to deal with the sin that is in your life? What are you going to trust in to be forgiven by God? Well, I recommend trust in Jesus for your salvation. Transfer your trust from nothing else to Jesus or from something else to Jesus, your own goodness, the fact that your great-grandfather was a pastor, or maybe that you were raised in a nation that's dominated by Christianity, you think you're American, oh, that's good enough, I'm automatically a Christian. And that's not the case. There's only one Savior, and his name is Jesus. And so we've got to place our trust and reliance in Jesus and his work, so that way we can have eternal life. Because Jesus paid for our sins, so that way we don't have to pay for our sins. And so it's said in the book of Acts, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and you will be saved. Know it to be true. Know that it applies to you. And then trust in Jesus. And then you have eternal life. We can be reconnected to that person too. Just like Israel will be reconnected as a nation to the leadership of Jesus Christ. But for us now, in this period of time, it's spiritual. It's not quite physical yet, even though it has some physical effects. There is the power of God's promises. God keeps His promises to us. What promises has God made to us as believers or just people in general in Texas, USA, 2023? What promises has He made to us? Well, he's, he, he promised us that He would comfort us. He promised that He would be sufficient for us. He promised us a level of physical needs, Matthew chapter 6. He promises us answers if we ask Him questions. Many of those answers are contained within the pages of Scripture. If we ask for wisdom to have an understanding of the true reality of things, we're promised that we will be given wisdom. He's promised us forgiveness. He's promised us a love that we have never experienced before, a perfect, unconditional, strong, other-centered love. He's promised us His active presence. He's promised us eternal life. He's promised us purpose. He's promised us value. He died for us, and the righteousness of Jesus is projected onto us, put into our account. So we have tremendous value. Some people say you've got to give your life to Jesus to become saved. Well, that's not really true because you didn't really have a life to begin with. See, you were dead. So saying give your life to Jesus before you're saved is kind of pointless. We've got to trust in Jesus. We've got to depend upon him because that is like an anti-work. That's the opposite of any type of work, just trusting. You're letting someone else do the work of your salvation, of being justified. Then an application for us is very, very similar to the application that the Israelites could have done as well. There were these false prophets who were only telling Israel the good news. Why? Well, because those false prophets, you know what they wanted? They wanted to be liked. They wanted to be popular. They wanted to be admired. Many of them also wanted money. Popularity and money. That's what they wanted. So what they did is they told people only that which they really wanted to hear. We have itchy ears. Please scratch them for us prophets. Oh, you are the Israelites. You are God's people. God will never allow anything bad to happen to you. Only good things will happen to you. And that was only part of the story. Ultimately, good things would happen to the nation of Israel because God will fulfill His promises through His unconditional promises that He made to Israel, just like He made unconditional promises to us. But if you oppress those who are poor, if you hurt your fellow Israelites 
and you steal their inheritance and their land and their identity, if you worship after the, the Baals, the false gods of the Canaanites, you will experience the consequences of those really bad and stupid choices. That was left out by the false prophets. But the true prophets of God had the guts to communicate that to the nation so that way the nation could have the opportunity to repent. So we have false prophets today who do exactly the same thing. The variables are different, but the constants, the formula, is the same thing. I will tell you exactly what you want to hear, so that way you feel good about yourself, even though there's not that much good about yourself. I will tell you, I will reaffirm you ad nauseum, so that way you'll like me. God has made promises to us. That's the positive aspect. He has made promises to us. I showed you charts. I gave you lists of things he has promised. Some of them have been fulfilled. Some of them are in the process of being fulfilled. Some will be fulfilled at future time. But then what about the promises that God has not made to us? You see, enter the false prophets of early 21st century. We have false teachers who communicate to us that you are guaranteed worldly success if you're a Christian. And if you're not getting health and wealth, if you're not getting that, um, then there's probably some sin in your life. Or maybe if you transfer some of your funds to us, then you'll that'll back to seed money, so that way God will return that money. What a bunch of nonsense. What a bunch of baloney from the pit of hell. But people are suckered by it. I'm never surprised by the presence of false teachers, but I, I am continually shocked, dismayed, and surprised by how many people respond to them. It's because they want it so badly, they want it veiled in spirituality, but it's fake spirituality. That's what that is. God has never promised us perfect equilibrium in this life. God has promised us actually the complete opposite of that. I want you disrupted. I want you backed into the corner sometime because that will be the compelling reason for you to depend upon me. And if you're opposed, if you're persecuted, that's actually a good sign for you because it shows that you are an active follower of Jesus Christ. It doesn't show that you're saved, but it shows that you're saved and you're an active follower of Jesus Christ. It shows that you're more than just a believer with the fire insurance, it shows that you're a believer who has the fire insurance, but you're also an active follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. So if you are opposed, if you're made fun of, if you're ignored by people in your school, or in your neighborhood, or in your workplace, and they just shake their head because you told them about Jesus Christ, but yet they are inside thinking about these claims that you make, because every day they're thinking about eternity and the fact that they might go to the place where there is the eternal absence of light and love and life itself. Maybe what they're saying is true. Maybe I better explore those claims. So for us, it's not only knowing the promises that God has made to us. It's also recalibrating our thinking, getting our expectations into proper alignment with what Scripture says about what God has promised and also what He has not promised to us.
Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and thank you for what you're doing in our world and what you will be doing. And we trust you. We thank you for the fulfilled promises already. Uh, They bless us. They meet our needs. We pray that we'll work hard to apprehend those blessings that require some participation and cooperation with what you're doing. So we pray that we'll realign our thinking with Scripture so that way we can understand those great blessings like horizontal peace, um, purpose in life, meaning. I pray, Father, that we'll also anticipate and look forward to those future promises that have not yet been fulfilled. But we trust you with their fulfillment because you are batting a thousand so far. And so we trust that you will continue to do that for us and for the world. Thank you for who you are. We trust that all of these things will glorify and reveal who you are and your characteristics, your attributes, and your intentions. They're, they're phenomenal. They're unique. We thank you for that, Lord, and that we're connected to you. Reveal more truth to us. Reset our brains so that way we can experience even contentment in a world filled uh, with disharmony and warfare. We pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.